So um, think, think with me for just a moment. Think about, uh, there's really two types of, this is so random, but it'll help us as we begin our conversation tonight. There's really two types of road signs. And I'm not saying you, you know, you approach road signs one of two ways. I'm saying there's really two types of road signs. So you have, you have one that is more like helpful advice or general principles. Uh, they just started, well, right here on John Clark Road, they just uh, paved John Clark, so that's newly paved. They just paved Robinson Road, which heads us, takes us out to um, where I live. And me and my wife were having this conversation last week. And uh, there's these signs, for instance, like low shoulder, there's also another sign, and she was like, why is this necessary? But clearly it's necessary because somebody, somebody did something boneheaded and wanted to blame it on the fact that there weren't any center lines yet. And so we, didn't, we don't have center lines on the road, and so it says, there's a sign that says no center line because that's needed, okay? Think about other signs that aren't hard and fast, but they're just, you know, watch for ice on the bridge, school zone. And the list could go on and on and on. And and when you think about these that are just helpful advice or general principles, because that's what they are, there's there's this idea that we need to observe the, the circumstances. We need to draw upon experience. We need to um, make appropriate decisions based on the circumstances and experiences, and then apply the signs principle to what we're doing. And then we have to take into account certain things. So for instance, watch for ice on the road. Okay. Clearly, we don't have to watch for ice on the road, right, at this point in time in life. And really down here, it's watch for ice on the bridge. That's the only icy signs we have. But at this point in time, so you're taking into account the season of the year. It's been 100 degrees for 100 days, it feels like. We don't need to worry about ice on the bridge. But when when temperatures do drop below freezing, well, now all of a sudden it changes, and we need to kind of think through this. Now, is, has it been precipitating? Is there water? Has it been raining? Is it, but if it hasn't been, then there's no need, even though it's below freezing. You see how I'm saying? Like there's these general principles, and we don't need to, we, we've got to sort through those. And so we think about the seasons, and we think about the weather. We think about the time of day. I mean, if it's a school zone, we don't have to we, we think about, well, if it's 8 o'clock at night, well, then this doesn't pertain. And so we make these decisions based on, on these principles, the traffic conditions. And so we apply, we apply wisdom, which I guess, you know, sometimes you, you think there's implied uh, wisdom. You, you think that, okay, they just paved the road, and we know there aren't lines in the middle of the road. But evidently, somebody's like, hey, no rules. I can drive on whatever side I want to drive. And so, nope, now we got to have a sign. And now you, you read the sign, and now you've got to, okay, I understand that this is what, you see what I'm saying? And so we apply these principles. Or the second one would be this idea that we, they don't require reasoning, that it's a hard and fast rule, that it's unquestionable. The speed limit is 45 miles an hour. Now, I'm not saying you obey it, because it's hard and fast, or it's unquestionable in in the way in which you obey it. I'm just saying, there's no thinking. You see a speed limit sign that says 45 miles an hour. You know, without question, the speed limit is what? You're not supposed to go over what? If you see a stop sign, no question. Now, 
some of your ideas of stopping and, and others are very different. And you approach stop signs the same way. But you understand when you see a stop sign, you stop the car completely. That's what, that's what it means. And that's what it, you do. If you see a do not enter sign, you see what I'm saying? So there's these hard and fast, there's these differences between these two types of, of signs. And again, you know, just because, just because it's hard and fast and it's unquestionable doesn't mean we do as the sign instructs. And so sometimes when it, we think about speed limit signs, we automatically think, you know, whatever, you got your own justification. I don't know what yours is, but, you know, well, five miles an hour is totally fine unless you're on John Clark because there's no way anybody's driving 30 miles an hour, right? But but what is it? What's your rule when you get on the interstate? Okay, everybody, you can drive five miles an hour over. Like, no cop's going to stop you. That's not a problem. Or you go with the, the speed limit. Or so you justify or maybe you ignore, okay? Um, maybe you just don't pay attention and you just ignore. And so you're like, hey, I, I'm just going to drive safe. My wife is, um, she's going to hate me, but <laughs> I'm not even going to look at her. seriously. (laughs) So now I will say this. She is one of the safest drivers I know. 100%. She will alter her route just to take the safest route. Not me. I'm going shortest route every time. But I can remember we were having a conversation. This was years ago. And uh, we were talking about speed limits. And because I actually pay attention to the speed limits and when they change and all these things. And she said, do you remember that time when it was the speed limit was 35 miles an hour? on Pass Road? And I said, yes, it's still 35 miles an hour on Pass Road. <laughs> and guess what? Even to, this was years ago, and guess what the speed limit is on Pass Road? 35 miles an hour. So the point is, is we can justify and we can ignore and we can do all these things. And, and sometimes, you know, all we need is the police to give us some added incentive <laughs> so that next time we remember the speed limit's 45 miles an hour. And so, you know, sometimes whatever it is. But the point is, is, is there's these two ideas. There's these general principles, this helpful advice. And then there's this hard and fast, straight to the point. This is clear. This is distinct. There's no question about it. Well, Scripture is much like that. And the Bible offers us two kinds of instruction. Two kinds of instruction. It offers us principles and it offers us precepts. And so there's these principles that that they apply, but you're going to have to think through. You're going to have to to actually spend some time and and wrestle through these about how it applies specifically to your life. And then there are these precepts, which there's no question. There's no thinking through. There's no anything. This is what it says. This is what it means. And so let's just think about it for a second. Let's let's help kind of get a good understanding of what we're talking about. Principles are not always specific and require wisdom to apply. Okay? So, for instance, in Philippians 2.3, it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. So then we have to think through, okay, well, where does, where does humility begin? Where does pride end? Where, what, is this, what does this look like? How do we behave unselfishly in, in your specific circumstances, in your specific family, in your specific work environment, in your different situations? And your situations are different than my situations. And so how do the, you have to apply wisdom to figure out how to 
How do I apply this? Let's go back to our conversation from this past Sunday. Very powerful service. And we, we had this whole discussion on forgiveness and, and bitterness and what that can do to us. And so we know that we're called to forgive. It is, right? We, we understand that. But, but, like, does that mean that we just give people freedom to hurt us over and over and over and over again? No, I mean, we can forgive and still have clear boundaries, good, healthy boundaries, ag- agreed? So my point is, is that there's this, we have, to, we have to wrestle through these things. We have to think through these things. And so it's not always specific as to the application and what it, what it looks like. We need wisdom. Precepts are very specific and require little thinking to apply. Think, you know, I was thinking about this. I was thinking probably the easiest and, and best just is to think about the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. You got to think through that. Very specific. Don't, don't murder. Don't lie. Don't steal. You see what I'm saying? So you see the difference between you don't have to, you don't have to worry about, well, how do I apply this to my life? Don't kill anybody. That's how you apply it to your life. It's, it's pretty straightforward. You don't have to think through that. In 1 Thessalonians, it says abstain from sexual immorality. Does not require much interpretation. You can figure that one out on your own. It's very clear and it's very concise. And so I say all that to say up to this point in chapter 6, Paul has given several principles. He's been sorting through and working through. And there's these things that, you know, we've talked about things concerning authority. We've talked about things concerning false teachers. We've talked about contentment. We've talked about a lot of things. But in verse 11, he suddenly, he he turns a corner. His tone changes and he starts firing off these precepts. So we've gone from principles to precepts. And it's going to seem like... um, I don't want you to think, it's, gonna, it's like he's firing off a shotgun. He's just boom, 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 boom. And so we're going to co- cover a lot of ground. And some of it, he's coming back around to discussions we've already had as he's, he's gone through 1 Timothy. And so we're coming back around to those things. And so he's just re- real quickly reminding Timothy of things that's already been discussed. So it's a lot of different things. And we're going to be headed in a lot of different directions but that's because as we're coming to the end, Paul wants to remind Timothy of these, these, very important, these very important things. And he issues these specifically for Timothy. And I think it's important as we, before we dive into reading this passage. Th- that this is a letter to Timothy, who's the pastor of the Ephesian church. And, and this is a letter to him. But the Holy Spirit intends this for all believers. And the Holy Spirit intends this for, for you and for me. And so whatever your circumstances, whatever you, whatever you, wherever you serve, where, whatever your family looks like, whatever, wherever your job is, where, whatever that is, that God intends this for you and for me in our circumstances and our specific situations. And so just imagine as we come to the end of this letter by Paul, imagine Paul just taking you by the shoulders and saying, calling you by name the same way he calls Timothy his beloved son, that, that God is saying, hey, this is for you. This is, this is important. This is, this is a gift. You need to get this. This is very important in your life and will be very helpful and instructive for you. So don't miss what we're talking about. 
Okay? All right. 1 Timothy. I'm going to read, I want to read the whole thing um, because it does come across kind of choppy. And so I want to read it in its entirety. And then what we'll do is we'll, we'll, work, we'll work through it. Okay? So 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 11. And it's, in, it's not in its entirety on your handout because I didn't have room and I refused to do more than one page. So, <laughs> But it is broken down whenever we get to each section. All right. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in, this te- in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Okay. In verse 11 and 12, he says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He starts out by saying, But as as for you, don't be driven by this false teaching that you see going on around you. Don't be... Don't have a misguided motivation. Don't have a misguided desires. Don't, don't have, is it, he just came off talking about the love of money and, and how it will consume us and how it, 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 he's saying, don't get caught up in those things. Oh man of God, you're set apart. You're different. If I had to say it, I would say, you're not like them, so don't act like them. You're not like them. So don't act like them. That's not, that's not who you are. I, I can remember when my kids were younger and they would come home, they would want to do something. If you're a parent, you've never heard this. They want to do something and they say, and your answer is no. And then their response is, well, so-and-so's doing it. Well, so-and-so's parents are okay with them, with them going. Everybody Everybody else is doing that. Everybody else has one. Everybody else. And I'm like, um, I don't care what everybody else is doing. And they're not my kids. You're my kid. And so I'm responsible for you. And my answer is no. Love you. <laughs> you, you know? And that always went over like a brick. But the point is, is 
you're, they're not my kids. And I don't care if everybody else is doing this. I don't care what everybody else is doing. I don't care. But here's, here's the thing. And this is common in the world in which we live. But it's also common in the church in which you're in. And so we got to be careful that uh, it's so important. There's, there's a church on every corner. It is so important that you're in a church that is preaching and teaching the Word of God and is actively you're filled with people who are living out their faith. Now, is everybody going to be doing that across the board? No. I mean, that's, no church is perfect and no church is, that's not the, how it is. But it's so important because what happens is for so many, so many people form their opinion of what they should and shouldn't be doing based on what everyone around them is doing. Based on what everybody else is doing. And it's so crazy to me because Scripture is, is crystal clear. I mean, when we look in the Gospels and we see Jesus talking about the, the wide gate and the narrow gate, and he's saying, look, there's a wide one. There's a whole lot of people that are on that path, and they're headed for destruction. But there's a narrow path. There's a narrow gate. There's a narrow way. There's few people on it, and it's difficult, but it leads to eternal life. But so many people base what they're going to do on what the, the majority of everybody else is doing. And we'll get ourselves in a whole lot, of, whole lot of problems. We'll get ourselves in some sticky situations if that's the way we, we do things. And Paul obliterates that. He goes specifically. He's like, I don't care what everybody else is doing. I've told you about what, what these knuckleheads are doing. I've told you about what's going on there around you. I've told, we talked about what the proper way is. I don't care what they're doing. You, Timothy, you do this, right? You. And so that's why I'm saying that Paul would grab us by the shoulders tonight and say, you, child of God, it doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. It doesn't matter if it seems counterculture. It, it doesn't matter if you feel like you're swimming upstream in the church. It doesn't matter. Do what you know to do. Do what the Word of God teaches for you to do. Do what you know to do based on the truth that's found in Scripture. The truth that's found in Scripture. Here's a question I have for you. I was thinking about this this week. What would you do if all the people in your life that you look up to, people in your life that, that you care about in the church, in the family of God, what would you do if they one by one started to fall away? What, what would you do if I dropped the microphone off my face and said, I'm done with this, I'm out of here, and walked out the back door? What, what would you do if everybody in your life just quit pursuing and living? What would you do? Because Paul's saying to Timothy, you, child of God, you do what you know God is calling you to. It doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. You do what you know to do, regardless of what everyone else around you is doing. That it's a personal, this, that he gets very specific. And that's for us too. You, child of God, live out your faith. When God speaks to you, when, when the word of God and the Spirit of God drives something home in your heart, and you're like, but nobody else is doing this. Why are you asking that question? God didn't tell everybody else to do this. He's telling you. 
And so quit looking around and looking for affirmation as to whether or not somebody else is doing what God's called you to do. If it's clear in Scripture and the Spirit of God is impressing upon you and it's the will of God, then do it. And do it. And who knows? Maybe you're the trendsetter. Maybe you're the leader that's going to lead a group of people in a certain direction. So do what God's called us to, to do. Then he goes on. And he's having this conversation of, of fleeing and pursuing and fighting. And I feel like it's here we go again. We've had this conversation. So I'm not going in great detail here because we've talked about the importance of fleeing, the importance of pursuing, the importance of, of fighting. We've talked about fighting the good fight. And how there's another fight that we can, that we can engage in. But we want, to fight in the, we want to fight the good fight. And so there's things we understand that we need to flee from. There's things that we need to pursue. And when he talks about pursuing them in verse 11, he says, Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. And again, these are just basic characteristics of, of what it means to be a Christian. These aren't any kind of earth-shattering truths. But if I had to sum everything up, I don't want to spend a ton of time here because it's pretty straightforward. If I had to sum it all up, he's saying, hey, have the, have the heart and mind, a heart and mind that operates in harmony with the mind of God. We've been given the mind of Christ. And so have a heart and a mind that operates in harmony with that. Desire to glorify God in every thought, in intention, in motivation, in every word that you speak, in every action that you do. This, I said, it's very general principles here but it's very easy to understand and oftentimes difficult to fully live this out just saying to live in a way that reflects um, resting in because he talks about faith he says it's really just living in a way that reflects resting in the promises trusting in the promises of God that we live this out in, in before the world around us that we live in a way that sacrificially loves and puts others before ourselves, that we follow the example of Christ, to see, wash the disciples' feet, that there's this steadfast obedience despite the pressures and the difficulties that come in this life. And we do this uh, in a very careful way, in a very controlled way, with a, with a quiet strength that truly cares, genuinely cares about the people that God has placed around us. This is what he's calling us to do. And so he's saying that to flee, to fight, to pursue. And here, this is, this is important for us to understand tonight, that, that the verb here is a present tense, okay? And so he's describing this, this continual action. So essentially he's saying, keep on fleeing, keep on pursuing, keep on fighting. That we don't ever arrive is this continual action of we're continually fleeing things. We're continually pursuing things. And sometimes we're just going to have to fight to flee that one thing for the rest of our life. But sometimes we just, it's no longer a problem. And then we begin to have to flee this and flee that. And God's continually showing us and speaking and working. And so it is this ongoing, continual process of fleeing and pursuing and fighting the good, fighting the good fight. So that means that we never arrive. That we never take our foot off the pedal. That there, we're to be growing in these things continually. So think of it like this. The moment we stop fleeing, pursuing, and fighting is the moment that we start drifting. It's the moment that we start drifting. That these are proactive commands. That there's no cruise control in the life of faith. Now we would like it that way. Because sometimes we get tired of fleeing. 
Sometimes we get tired of pursuing. We just want to take a day off. We, we just want to do nothing. And, and, but the truth is, is there's, there's no days off. There's no cruise control. There's no stop. Because if we're not moving forward, then we begin to drift. That's what happens. And, and for some of you in the room, you know this full well. You, you've, you found yourself in a place and you, and you ask yourself, how did, I, how did I get here? How did I get so far off track? Now, there are times when we deliberately seek out sin and we, comp- we just deliberately indulge in sin. But sometimes it's just apathy. We don't do anything. And we don't do anything not just for a day, but we're like, man, I'm just tired. And so we take off a day or a week or a month. The next thing you know, we look around and we're like, how did I get so far off track? Well, I can tell you, you quit fleeing, you quit pursuing, and you quit fighting the good fight. And that's how we end up drifting so far off course. And so it is a constant, constant battle. And we can't ever, we can't ever quit. It's too important. Then he, then he makes the, the comment here in verse 12. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you were made. Uh, you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So take hold of eternal life. That can, it can seem kind of tricky because it's like, okay, well, is it, he, what he's not saying, let me say this. He's not saying because if you don't take hold of it, it's going to slip away. He's not saying take hold of it because it's dependent upon your effort. And if you don't have a good grip, then eternal life is going to slip from your grasp and from your hands. That's not what he's saying here. He's not saying hold on or lose it. He shifts from, we talked about the, I'm not trying to get all nerdy on you, but he shifts from the the present tense verb of this whole constant pursuit of fleeing and pursuing and fighting. And here he he drives on the point that we hold eternal life tightly because it already belongs to us. Okay? And so it's not like we keep doing this. We're going to grab a hold of this because, hey, this is, this belongs to me. That we're struggling in a competition that's already been won. I I believe this illustration has been used before, but I don't know any better way to illustrate this point and exactly what Paul's talking about here. Um, Have you ever, have you ever, I don't, I know we got some sports fans in the room, but you ever wanted to watch a game, couldn't watch a game, recorded the game in hopes to not know how it ends before you watch the game? But ultimately, somebody always ruins it. And so literally, I rarely do this now unless it's a big game. But there have been times where I record a game and then I don't get on my phone. I don't, I don't do anything. I'm not getting on Facebook. I'm not pulling up ESPN. I'm not turning on the TV. I'm not listening. Somebody walks in and starts talking. I'm like, la, 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 because I don't want to know, right? I want to watch the game and see it unfold as if it's real time. I can remember uh, several years ago, the, the kids were actually younger, and we, this was back when we had Sunday night service, and so it was Super Bowl Sunday. We recorded the Super Bowl, and then we went over to, uh, I think we were at Tony's house this year and we were watching the game and uh I don't remember who was playing but uh Tony's oldest son walks in and says hey can y'all believe so-and-so won the Super Bowl and we're like you jerk (laughs) like why would you do that you know that we recorded it we went over after church we're watching the game but here's what happens And, and you know this is true if you've recorded a game and you know the outcome before you watch the game it changes the way you watch the game 
Agreed? If you know that your team wins and you know what the final score is, you may not know how we're going to get there. But man, when there's a penalty against your team or when the other team goes up a touchdown and then another touchdown and then another touchdown, you're watching going, man, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I know it's going to work out. Right? Because I know the end of the game. I know how this game ends. I know what the final score is. And so it completely and totally changes the way in what you watch the game. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's like, hey, we win. You, you get eternal life. And so all of a sudden, now, if there's a penalty against you, if you take a setback, if your key running back gets injured, if, you, if you're, whatever it is that happens in your life, whatever setback you encounter, doesn't matter. He's saying, take hold of that which you've been given. It's yours. It's yours. It changes the way we watch the game. Think of it like this. There's a trophy called eternal life. And if you're a child of God, it has your name permanently engraved on it. And it's it's not saying, hey, hold on tight so you don't lose your trophy. It's saying, hey, don't forget. Don't forget this. This is important. Don't forget this. Because there are going to be times when you get kicked in the teeth. And you're going to forget about eternal life. Because this is what's right in front of me. Hold on tight to this. Because you're going to need to come back to this. Remember the final score? Remember the final score. That's what he's saying. And then he continues on talking about the good good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I, I don't know for sure. But I would imagine he's probably talking about Timothy's baptism. Probably talking about uh, his his public ministry and that stuff. And so this is why, you know, why it's important for us that we do this publicly, that we make a, a stand for God. When God saves us, there's this public declaration and confession of our faith in Christ. And Timothy did that. Verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in, uh, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's this, again, there's this conversation here of this, this public declaration. He talks about uh, Timothy's public confession, but then he talks about how Jesus is, is the example for us. And so a lot of times we, we think about our, our faith, we think of it as a personal relationship as it is, but it's not a private relationship, Okay. Our relationship with God is a personal relationship. You, child of God, you have a personal relationship with Christ. But it's not in, never intended to be private. He's saying that you made a public confession. That Jesus before Pontius Pilate, he's the example that he made a public declaration of the gospel. He made a public declaration of, of his relationship with the Father. That there's this public declaration. It ended up costing him his life. So we are to make the good confession both with our mouth and with our actions. That we keep the commandment. That's what he says here. That we keep the commandment. We guard, it, we guard the commandment. We guard ourselves against compromise. We guard ourselves against sin. And so we don't compromise. He's saying don't compromise your calling. And in so doing, what you do is you bring a stain. You bring a reproach. That's, that's what he's saying. And upon the, if, if you think back to um, the difficult text a couple weeks ago that tony tony hit on in the beginning of chapter six those first two verses can can seem kind of 
you know, you really got to dive into those. You, you can't just take those at face value. But the point is, is that, hey, the name of the Lord is what's most important. That's what's most important. And so don't compromise because you're going to bring a stain and a reproach upon the name of the Lord. You're going to bring a stain and a reproach upon yourself, upon, upon your, your family, upon your, your church, upon the church. I am um, so often, and if, if you're legitimately attempting to live out your faith, you know you've lived, you have had to untangle, and it doesn't just happen in a day or a week or a month. It takes years and years and years. So often, we have to spend our time unraveling the damage of so many other Christians, right? So many people that go to church, so... Think about coworkers. Think about neighbors. They have this image and this idea of what Christianity is because of people that they've encountered over time. And so, you know, when you say you're a Christian, they think about that guy that was lazy, who always cut corners, who did everything they could to get out of work. They think about the fact that this guy that, that you know, said he went to church and acted one way and talked this way and did all these things until somebody else who went to church walked in the room and all of a sudden now he's a completely indifferent person. They, they think about, and I can go on and on. I mean, we can just continue, but you know what I'm saying. So oftentimes we have to say, that's not what Christianity is about. And we spend, we have to spend long periods of time investing in the people around us that just have a misunderstanding of what it means to be, what it means to be a Christian. And we don't want to add to that. We, don't, we want to give the people around us an accurate view, an accurate depiction of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And that's what he's saying here. Not perfectly. We're not going to do this perfectly. We're not going to live out our faith perfectly. But genuinely. Just genuinely. The, the, world, the world can appreciate authenticity. God's not calling us to be perfect. Be authentic. Be humble. Be growing in godliness. Be growing in the things that he's saying pursuing here. But be walking away from the things that he's saying fleeing. And own your mistakes and take responsibility. And people will be like, okay, all the other people that claim that, I've never seen anybody do that. Something's different. And that's what Paul is getting at here. And that's what we're called to, to live out. Verse 15. Uh, he continues, he says, uh, so he talks about the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. There's coming a day that has been determined by the Father where the Son will return to earth. He's coming back. Okay, we know how the game ends, all right? He's coming back, and this is not uh, metaphorically or spiritually. It's not in our dreams or in visions. Uh, he's literally in bodily form, in person, coming back. And when he comes back, he's not coming back as a baby. And he's not coming back as the lowly lamb that he was destined for sacrifice the first time that he came. That he's coming back as a warring lion, a king of kings, the Lord of lords. That's who he is. And he will reclaim his throne from evil. 
And that's, he's not playing games. And Paul just paints this picture. He's saying, you need to have a full understanding of who Jesus is. You've got to have a full understanding of exactly who he is. So in Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And Revelation chapter 17 says, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. I'm going to read this next passage for you. I, I referenced it on your handout, so you can go back and look, look at it if you wanted to. But listen to what listen to what's described in Revelation chapter 19. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of God the Almighty." And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. That understand something. Whatever view we have of God, whatever view the world has of Christ, this is the reality. Now, he is the friend of sinners. He is everything that we see depicted in the Gospels. He did come as a baby. He was the sacrificial lamb. But that's not how he's coming back. That's not how he's coming back. And we submit to him as Lord, and he's worthy of that submission. He's worthy of that. And it's important that we have an accurate and complete view and understanding of who he is because we often think of Jesus, rightly so, but we, we think of him as being forgiving. We think of him as being loving. We think of him as being gracious, a God of grace. We think of him as being merciful. And he is all those things. But he is holy in such a way that we can't approach him. It's unapproachable light. That the, the Old Testament believers, they, they had a good understanding. They, they understood that around Mount Sinai, you had to put stones around the mountain because God's presence was in the mountain, on the top of the mountain. And if you touched the mountain because of the holiness of God, you would drop dead right there. Dead. That's the holiness of this unapproachable, unapproachable God. And the only way that we're able to approach him is by the blood of Christ, that God slaughtered his son so that we can now approach him, but it doesn't change who he is. And we need to understand that, that he didn't and he doesn't take our sin lightly. Proverbs 9.10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. That, that we need to have, as the people of God, we need to have a good understanding. That we need to have a healthy fear and respect and reverence for this awesome God that we serve. That's important. Not fearful like we're cowering, scared to death of an angry dad. 
But we understand the majesty and the holiness and the awesomeness of the God that made a way for us to approach him, to to come to him. The only response that we have is to fall on our face. You know what we're going to do when we stand in the presence of Jesus? There's not going to be any high fives. Jesus is my homeboy. That's what it's going to look like. You know what it's going to be? We're going to fall on our face. That's what we're going to do. And he's going to come running. But we're going to fall on our face because we're going to see him. We're going to realize. We're going to realize. He's saying, hey, we need to have a full understanding. We need to have a better grasp of the magnitude of who God is. And this is a good reminder because our response when we have a good understanding will lead to awe. It will lead to, to proper worship. It will lead to rightful obedience. That's what's going to happen. That's, that's where it leads. Verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. As the letter comes to an end, Paul return to a topic that he's talked about through the course of the letter and honestly he talked about it earlier in this chapter matt spent a great deal talking about this last week and so if you weren't here i would encourage you to go back and listen to that but just talked about the importance of contentment talked about uh you know really just how wealth and the things of this world they're temporary and he you know he hit on the fact that he didn't say money is bad money's not a bad thing and not all people allow money to corrupt them, but there is the potential for corruption. He makes the point. He doesn't say, and a lot of people take this verse in First Timothy out of context, and they say, money is the root of all evil. Well, that's not what it says. What does it say? It's the love of money and the craving for it, this desire to have to have it and to desire and to pursue it more than we pursue God and the things of God. And so we'll sacrifice anything and everything to, to get it. So it's the love of money that we got to be careful about. And so there's this potential for corruption and the love for money and this unhealthy craving. And so Paul circles back around to it. And he's got two do's and two don'ts. He starts out by saying, don't be haughty, which just means arrogant. And don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. So he's saying, don't be arrogant and don't give yourself too much credit for the, what you have. I mean, I know you work for it. You're the one that's hitting, you know, clocking in and clocking out. You're the one that's hustling and doing all the effort and the work and all those things. But, but don't, don't give yourself too much credit. And James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And so, so we got to remember where the gift comes from. We, we're to enjoy it. God talks about it here. He says, hey, enjoy it. Give thanks for those things. Be, be content with those things. Don't, but don't do this. Don't look to money or things as a source of our security. And we live in a culture where, you know, we're very affluent. We have a lot of things. And when we have a lot of things, we feel secure. And when we don't, we don't feel secure. And he's saying, don't put your trust and your hope in, in those things. Those things aren't where you're to find your security. Instead, see those things as an opportunity to do good to do good. So he says, don't be haughty and don't set your hopes on uncertainty of riches. Because the truth is, is, you know, economies fail, uh, the stock market can crash, 
whatever cash you got can one day easily just be worthless pieces of paper. Don't put your hope and your faith in that. Put your hope and your faith in God. And he says, but hey, understand that money is a wonderful tool. He says, do become rich in good works. Do be generous and ready to share. And, and understand that, that Jesus used the same banking imagery. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so we, wanna, we want to... Uh, we want to think of money as a tool for doing good. And so we, when we have a right understanding, we see that the kingdom of God is not a temporary emergency savings plan. It's not fire insurance, but it's an eternal investment opportunity. That we get the privilege and the opportunity to invest in eternity. We get to do that with our lives, but we also get to do that with our things. And so we have the opportunity to invest in something that's going to last to invest in something that, that genuinely matters. And he's inviting us to do that. And he's saying, hey, this, this, is, this can be a good thing. It can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing. Use it for what it's intended for, to bring glory to God, to do the good work of, of building the kingdom. And I'd say this. It may appear that we live in, like I said a minute ago, we live in a very affluent culture. I mean, never has been been a time in the history where we're more affluent than we are now and it may appear that we live in the land of of milk and honey and regardless of how much or how little you have you live in the united states of america and so if you look around the rest of the world you're affluent so whoever has the most and whoever has the least in the room the point is is everybody here is affluent and so and then if you look around, we live in, in a world that's very affluent. You see people driving these luxury cars, and the houses continue to get bigger and bigger. And, you know, there's quality food on every corner, which praise God for that. Praise God for that. I love the fact that there's quality food on every corner. we got choices between awesome places to, to go and eat. We can afford to go out and eat those places. But there's famine in the land. We need to understand that. It may appear like everything is wonderful. It may appear like we live in the land of milk and honey. But there's famine in the land. There's this appearance of abundance. But the people that we encounter day in and day out is severe malnutrition. Now, it doesn't look like it. We look well put together. We look very healthy. But the truth is, is there's severe malnutrition both in our culture and in the church as a whole. And we live in a, in, a, in a country where you can go to any bookstore on any corner and you can get a copy of Scripture. Not just a copy of Scripture. You can get a copy of Scripture to your liking. And if they don't have a bookstore where you live, guess what they do have? Amazon. <laughs> Praise the Lord for Amazon. Because then you don't have to ever go shopping. But you put up, you type in Bible into Amazon and guess what? You got your choice of whatever Bible you want. In, in every single major language across the world. And you can get whatever translation you want. You can get a study Bible. You can get a thin line Bible. You can get a leather bound Bible. You can, whatever you want. You can get a teen Bible. You can get a children Bible. You can get a, What do you want? 
You can get whatever font size you want, whatever print. You can, you name it. You can have it. It's yours. You can order it right now, and in two days, you'll have it. It'll be at your house. And you don't even have to order because most everybody has a Bible. But still, malnourished. Malnourished. And think about this. We live in a time where there's unprecedented literacy. More people can read. You realize that's not always been the case? So not only do we have the Word of God, but it's accessible to to most everybody. I'm not saying that it's in everybody's language and everybody has the Bible. I'm saying for the most part, if you want it, it's there for the taking. And you don't even have to depend on anybody else because there was a time where you had to depend on people because most everybody couldn't, couldn't read. And we live in a country that's founded on Christianity. That the principles of Scripture is what this country is founded on. And yet people are starving to death. Why? Why? How do we get here? How do we get here? We got here because someone failed to guard the treasure. Someone failed to guard the treasure. Paul ends in verse 20 and 21. You know, normally Paul ends on a happy note. He just kind of wraps everything up in a nice, tidy little bow and puts a wrapping on it and boom. That's not really how he does it here. He's still, he's to the very end. He says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing, Uh, For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. He closes this letter the same way it began. If you go back and you read the first few verses of of Timothy chapter 1, what you'll see is he's like, hey, people are swerving from the the truth. There's false teaching and false teachers that have come in. you you got to guard the deposit, which is the gospel that's been entrusted to you. you got to guard the truth. There's a solemn charge to the believers to guard the inerrant, inspired Word of God. We have been trusted with the most important and valuable commodity on the planet. The Word of God. And listen, yes, that is extremely true for for those who stand in, in this place and preach and teach the Word of God. We've got to guard the truth. But as believers, as Christians, you have the same responsibility that every one of your pastors that stand up here and teach and preach. You have the responsibility to guard guard the deposit, that that you guard the the truth. That's how we got here. Somebody quit guarding what had been entrusted to them. We quit guarding the treasure. And and yes, I said someone, but I mean, it started with someone, and then someone else, and then someone else, and now you look around, and it's like, hey, we're just all doing what everybody else is doing, and we think we got it figured out, and we're all starving to death. We live in a world where people are starving to death, and so it's like, well, how did we get here? Somebody didn't guard the truth. As a culture, we're not guarding the truth. As a church, we have to be guarding the truth. We've been trusted with the most valuable commodity on the planet. Don't blow it. He's saying don't blow it. Don't don't compromise it. Don't apologize for it. And don't get sidetracked with things that don't matter. He said avoid and this is several times he's talking about don't get caught off doing talking about things that don't matter. Don't why are you wasting your time? 
Stay focused on the mission. Stay focused on what's in front of us. Stay focused on eternity and what really matters in light of eternity. So don't get sidetracked. So just a few, a few things as we close our time together um, to keep in mind. And, and think, of, think of principles and precepts, okay? So think of how we apply these things to our life and what it means for, for us moving forward. All right, number one, God's commands are usually brief, simple, and clear. His commands are usually brief, simple, and clear. Here's the thing about God. One of the things I, I mean, there's so many things I love about him, but he's not playing hide and seek from us. He's not. He's not disguising his will, saying, hey, I'm going to put this over here. If they look really hard, maybe they'll find it. No, it's right here. It's laid out, clear. Now, there are principles we may have to dig into to figure out how those things apply to our life, but when it comes to those clear commands, he's not disguising his will. The problem isn't in not knowing. Number two, God commands, God's commands call for one response, and that's obedience. God's commands call for one response, and that's obedience. The problem isn't not knowing. See, oftentimes, we know what God's calling us to do. We just don't want to do it because it's hard, and we get tired, and we don't want to flee, and we don't want to pursue, and we don't want to fight the good fight. We just want to sit on our couch and watch TV. Can I just do, can I just do that? Can I take a day off, right? And so it's like, Okay, I'm constantly going, constantly, and we give ourselves to all these other things, and we miss out on the most important thing. But when it comes down to it, it's easily identifiable. It's just often difficult to do. And number three, God's commands are for our good and for his glory. Let me say it like this. God isn't the ultimate fun killer or the ultimate uh, fun sponge. And he's just trying to take the fun out of everything. But hey, all, like his sole purpose is, hey, I'm just going to make their life as boring, as miserable as possible. So you guys can't do these things. I know they look fun, but you can't do those because I just don't want you to have fun. What I want you to do is I want you to come over here and be really bored and be really frustrated because you have to do a bunch of stuff you don't feel like doing. That's not, that's not what what God is about. That's not who he's about. On the contrary, the things that he's commanding us to are for our good, that he's taking us away and leading us away from danger. He's taking us and leading us away from pain. He's taking and leading us away from lesser things to the most important things. He's saying, don't get sidetracked. Don't get, don't do that. I'm not taking away the fun. What I'm, what I'm doing is leading you towards opportunities for joy and purpose and meaning in your life and and satisfaction not not in me I mean not in the things of this world but satisfaction in me you're trying to find it in all these things that's not where you're going to find it you'll never find it there and it'll never be enough and that's why you keep going back and you always need more and you need more and you need more Come to me, is what he's saying. That's where you'll find ultimate purpose and meaning and satisfaction. You don't need those things. I'm trying to help you. And that's what God is doing in the things that he's telling us to flee and the things he's telling us to pursue. He's trying to to help us. And Paul called for gratitude all throughout this letter. He called for it in chapter 6. And the reason is because obedience is often inspired by the gift of eternal life. Heaven isn't a reward for good behavior. It's a promised gift. And when we understand the gift and we really under, we have understanding of that, 
what happens is, is obedience naturally flows from appreciation for the eternal gift we've been given in Christ. Obedience will naturally flow. When, when, we, when we understand, when we, when we realize what we've been given in Christ, that, that this unapproachable God, that we can now approach Him and we can have relationship with Him, we can, well, what does that do? That's going to fuel obedience in my life. Why wouldn't I follow this God? Why wouldn't I do what He says? It doesn't make any sense not to. And lastly, we aren't called to devotion to commands, but unswerving devotion to a person. If you're, this is so important, and this is where we're going to end. If you're resolving to obey commands, and that's what you think that this Christianity thing is about, and you're just going to do these things because it's the right thing to do, it's not going to get you very far. It's not going to take long before you do say, man, I'm tired. I'm tired. Instead, it's obedience to the one who gave everything for you. See, God's calling us to devotion, not to commands, but to a person. And guess what Jesus is? He's the ultimate example of what complete devotion looks like. Complete devotion to the Father and complete devotion to us. He's devoted. And so why wouldn't we, in response, be devoted to Him? But it's not about the, the commands. And it's not about pursuing the commands. It's about pursuing Jesus. It's about pursuing Jesus, and that's the life that he's called us to. And that's where we find our fulfillment. That's where we find our purpose. That's where we find our meaning. That's when we're most satisfied, because we're most satisfied in the thing we were created for. That's the way it works. So, 1 Timothy, what a, what a blessing. Let me pray. God, thank you, for, thank you again for your word. Thank you for our study through First Timothy, I pray that you would help us to, to really understand everything that we've...